This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of October the 10th, 2022, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today's podcast is about the link between infant health and where the infant lives, or I should say, the lack of a safe or consistent living situation. Recent studies from across the country have helped solidify the link between housing instability, for example, substandard conditions, homelessness, or needing to move regularly, and poor infant health. In a pilot program based in Ohio called Healthy Beginnings at Home, organizers wanted to test the impact of providing pregnant women struggling to find and stay in secure homes with rental assistance and other services to stabilize their housing situations. In the group of mothers in the pilot program, there were no infant deaths and there were more full-term healthy births than in the control group. The pilot group also saw shorter stays in neonative intensive care and a reduced need for emergency health care. The Indiana University Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI has received a five-year, $2.4 million federal grant to launch an initiative to reduce Indianapolis's infant mortality rate, and it specifically will address housing instability. Called the Housing Equity for Infant Health Initiative, the program will provide support for pregnant women and mothers with infants under one year old. The organizers then will evaluate the program's impact on birth outcomes and healthcare costs. CareSource, a not-for-profit that provides healthcare insurance coverage through public programs including Medicaid and Medicare, was a key participant in the Ohio-based pilot of Healthy Beginnings at Home. It is also a key player in bringing Healthy Beginnings at Home to this initiative in Indianapolis. A second major piece of the initiative is focused on health justice. Led by the Indiana Justice Project, it will combine legal education, direct legal services, strategic litigation, and advocacy to improve both housing stability and housing conditions for pregnant Hoosiers. In this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast, we're going to dig into the details with two guests, Dr. Camuel Wright, an OBGYN, and Vice President and Market Chief Medical Officer with CareSource, and Jack Terman. He's the Director of the Housing Equity for Infant Health Initiative and the Grassroots Maternal and Child Health Initiative, as well as a professor in the Fairbanks School of Public Health. We cover the link between unstable housing and poor infant health, the difficulty in quantifying the extent of the problem, and the hope that the initiative will lead to larger efforts across the state. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Camuel Wright, an OBGYN and Vice President and Market Chief Medical Officer with CareSource. Thanks for making time today. Good morning. Happy to be here. And we're joined by Jack Terman, Jr., Director of the Housing Equity for Infant Health Initiative, Professor in the IU Fairbanks School of Health, Professor of Pediatrics at IU School of Medicine, and the Founder and Director of the Grassroots Maternal and Child Health Initiative. Jack, thanks for coming. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. So the reason we're here, IU Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health at IUPUI recently received a five-year 
$2.4 million grant to launch a housing equity initiative to reduce Indianapolis's infant mortality rate. And this is the housing equity for infant health initiative, which we just mentioned, Jack, and you're the director. Yep. Yep. Very quickly. Where did the grant come from? The grant comes from, it's called HRSA, and that's Health Resources and Services Administration. And that is a part of our United States Department of Health and Human Services. So the main principle behind the initiative, I take it, is that housing is a key factor in infant health. How so? Yeah, that's it's a great question. Thanks a lot. So um, I'm really I'm really glad you asked that because it's really important that we understand uh, social economic reasons behind infant health. Um, that are those upstream factors to the medical issues that then result in poor birth outcomes. So, two important things to understand about this is that when I started the grassroots initiative four years ago, the major issue that our grassroots maternal and child health leaders across Indiana brought to our table was the need for safe, secure affordable housing for pregnant women and women raising their infants and toddlers. They just kept persisting to me on this, right? That we got to work to get housing. We got to work to get housing. We got to work to get housing. Well, within the past, I don't know, two to three years, all of their wise insight and statements were justified and validated by a number of very important studies that from California, Georgia, Massachusetts, and then a large review from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the poor housing conditions and or housing instability, meaning one is homeless or one is moving from house to house on a daily basis, is directly related to poor birth outcomes, both for the infant, meaning preterm birth, low birth weight, infant mortality, as well as poor birth outcomes for the woman, um, maternal morbidity, um, problems with labor and delivery, and then her survival afterwards. So there is a strong voice from community women in Indiana, and there is this awesome data, right? Now, how does housing relate to poor birth outcomes? two ways. Number one is housing instability, meaning one is insecure in their housing, homelessness, jumping from place to place, etc. We know that that causes what we call toxic stress in a woman, chronic toxic stress. This toxic stress we know impacts her biology or her physiology. It impacts her cardiovascular system, making her more hypertensive. It affects her immune system, making her more likely to get infections, right, during pregnancy. It affects her neuroendocrine system, so um, her, her hormonal her hormones, mm-hmm. her hormonal system, so to speak, and of course it. In- it influences her behavioral choices, right? Anyone that's really stressed, right, is going to make decisions to try to help reduce that and keep surviving. So that is a very important link between housing instability and poor birth outcomes. And the second important thing for people to understand is 
poor housing quality, which we have a real issue with in Indiana. So you have these awesome women pregnant or trying to raise their babies in homes with lots of mold, lead, that, you, you know, landlords may choose to have hot water on, hot water off, electricity on, electricity off, gas on, gas off. And so these, this poor quality also can influence the outcomes of the infant. So it was through our great partnership with CareSource that we have the opportunity to move in in a really exciting place. We know housing is related to poor birth outcomes. Now let's do an intervention, right? You know, to show how we can address it. I think you're absolutely right, Jack. And I would add a couple things, which is, all of the the factors that that you've shed light on are not experienced equally. So we know that there are certain populations, particularly populations of color, that are more likely to experience um, housing instability and thus more likely to experience the poor outcomes. So Indiana does not fare well in terms of infant and maternal mortality. And we know that the rates of um, infant mortality in particular for black babies is twice that of white babies. And there are many different drivers of that, but social factors like the housing instability that, that we're talking about today play a large role in that. So, when we talk about improving maternal outcomes, we want to make sure that we're looking at that at all populations. And I think that while this is critically important for everyone, it is so important for communities of color to focus on housing equity, how we can stabilize them from, from a housing perspective and, and therefore lead to better outcomes. What kinds of barriers specifically would communities of color face to uh, stable housing? So I think that Jack hit on several of them, but number one is just having insufficient housing in general. So not having the resources to secure a safe and affordable place to live. I think the second is there are issues with having to live wherever you can afford and that place maybe not being optimal. So a lot of communities of color will live in older residences, older apartment buildings that may have limitations in terms of, you know, as Jack said, heating, cooling, hot water. There may be lead. Lead is a huge factor, um, particularly in older residences. And we know that exposure to lead in pregnancy and in infancy can lead to devastating neurological outcomes. Asbestos, even. Um, There are many different factors that can be in an older home that people may have no option but to live. There's also the the situation where people sometimes will have to live with other people and they may be living with an aunt for a couple months and then they may be living with, you know, a neighbor for a couple months. And it's very difficult to stabilize the rest of your life when your housing is up in the air. 
And so these are factors that um, communities of color oftentimes deal with. And we know, again, that that has profound effects in pregnancy and beyond. Yeah. In our research, it's really important. Your question is really important that to understand what are those barriers, especially for families of color. And so we really dove into this for the grant. It was a part of the requirement that HRSA had for us to really look into that. And here's what we found is that, first of all, there's a a lack of affordable housing, simply a lack of affordable housing. So there's a lack of opportunity even to move in that market. The New York Times just did a fabulous piece about the housing crisis in America is very much linked to the loss of creating starter homes and affordable apartments for people to just move into to get started in building wealth and equity and things like that. Number two, a lack of rental support. Let me tell you what we learned. Do you know how long it takes in Indianapolis, the waiting list to get a section eight housing in Indianapolis is 50 months, 5-0, 50 months. We had a we lost a baby in Indianapolis in the beginning of this year because the woman lost her housing, went to all the shelters, all the shelters are filled. She went to the housing authority. She did the right things, my friends. She did exactly the right things. And 50 months, and then she slept that, you know, she was three thousandth on the waiting list. And she lost her baby. And so this is an issue. Number two, landlords' willingness to accept families. Families are the most vulnerable because we know here that housing a family, a single woman with a family is very hard to get housing for. And so that then disproportionately impacts them. Next thing, limited legal services. There, that's as you'll ask me in our grant, we 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 expanded the work to now we have a health justice intervention to provide legal services and change legal rulings to support renters and tenants because like we, we learned from a lot of women, they don't even know their rights around this, right? Do you know what I mean? So they don't know what to do. And then finally, a, a, a real limitation of tenant reforms here. Do, do you know what I mean? So that supports tenants. So these were all issues that we found that led, these are important barriers that we need to work on as a community, right? So that we get pregnant women and women with children in safe, secure, affordable housing. Do we have a sense in Marion County of how many pregnant women or new mothers are struggling with housing at any given time? Let me put it this way. Um, it's First of all, it's important to understand, be careful of hearing any data you hear about this, all right? Because what we learned around this in our studies was that it's undercounted. There, mm. aren't, there aren't good mechanisms to really keep count of this on a regular basis. And please know that women, a major cause of homelessness and near homelessness in women is domestic violence. And so when a woman- Such a good point. When they're experiencing domestic violence and they go to a domestic violence shelter, 
they are not counted as housing insecure. In fact, they are housing insecure, right? Do you know what I mean? Like they're just in that shelter, you know, for protection. So here we go. Let me give you some data around this. So before you jump into that, I I just want to, I want to piggyback on that to say that oftentimes in the, in the medical community, you don't know what you don't ask. So I think that a lot of our patients are dealing with housing insecurity, but they're not actually ending up being counted. So as I I mentioned earlier, those people who are, you know, four generations in the same home with very limited resources because they don't have another option, those people aren't being counted. People who are couch surfing, so to speak. So they're with a different family member or friend every couple of months, and then and they they are forced to move. Those people aren't counted. So I think to Jack's point, this is a much bigger issue than we're able to even quantify. Yeah. And so conservatively, exactly what Cami said, conservatively, we know from our databases that every year for about the past five to six years, we've had about 250 pregnant women and or mothers of infants homeless every year in Indianapolis. Of the homeless population, 54% are Black or African American. And remember, those are ones, like Cami is stressing, those are ones that were counted. Does that make sense, Jenny? So we're not counting those that are in domestic violence shelters that are couch surfing, you know, that are moving or in motels, right? They just are doing stuff and they'll get a motel room, you know? So, and also I can tell you this from our Indianapolis um, fetal and infant mortality report of from 2020, I want to make sure I get the 2020, yeah, Of 79 cases of fetal and infant death we reviewed, about half of those were housing insecure. There was a a housing instability as a present factor in that infant death. So clearly, we have some issues here. I mean, that's that's why we're one of the nine awardees in the United States to bring programming to address infant health equity. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our conversation with Dr. Camula Wright and Jack Turman about the Housing Equity for Infant Health Initiative.
it, it occurred to me that so many of these, as you say, cases we don't know about because they're not counted. How do you find them to help them with this program? I think it takes a village, right? So I think that, you know, I would encourage the medical community to make sure that they're assessing their uh, patients from a social standpoint. So not just how you're doing medically, but do you have safe housing? Do you have adequate food? Those sorts of things. That will certainly identify a few people. I think community-based organizations are really critical. So we have many wonderful organizations in the community that are facing our members and helping them address barriers. I think that will be another mechanism. I think homeless shelters certainly can help us to identify women who may be experiencing this. Certainly domestic violence shelters will be another avenue. So it is going to take a concerted effort to be able to properly identify these women and um, funnel them into proper services like this. And that's that's a really important part of our funding. We built an amazing team, an amazing, huge team for this. So we have CareSource Naturally as a lead partner, the Indiana Justice Project, the Wheeler Mission, Merchants Affordable Housing, the City of Indianapolis Mayor's Office, Prosperity Indiana, the State Department of Health's Maternal and Child Health Bureau, um, Coalition for House Homelessness Intervention and Prevention, Everyone listening, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone, but it's a huge team, right? Like Cam, you saying, this is a huge issue that takes a big village of different experts. And I really want to do a shout out because key on that team are some amazing grassroots maternal and child health leaders who I have to lift them up because it was their persistent voice of saying we have to address this and they bring the community wisdom to the table that none of us have. They are the experts and and they are really connected out into those communities. That's why we really are really grateful to have those women. So am I understand correctly, the initiative will help both pregnant women and parenting women who are currently have an infant, uh, a baby under one year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, to find more stable housing. So we get to the meat of it. How will you help those women? What are the different uh, mechanisms you have <laughs> so to get we them have, where they need to go? So we have two large interventions in the grant. So the first one, I'm going to introduce it. And I'm going to talk about the second intervention. Then I'm going to let Cami elaborate on the housing intervention because it's a care source thing and it's got to give care source the big shout out for that. So the first intervention is called Healthy Beginnings at Home. And um, again, uh, so, so there's three kind of components of that, housing navigation services, rental assistance services throughout pregnancy and the, the child's first two years of life. And Third is comprehensive case management services. So I'll let Cami elaborate that in just a second. Intervention number two is a health justice intervention, and that's led by the Indiana Justice Project. And and we're really being responsive to women in the community because they don't know their rights. They don't know how do you address housing, right? Like how do you 
how do we move forward in a, in a human rights approach to do that? So Adam Mueller, who heads the Indiana Justice Project, is leading that intervention. And that intervention has a legal education, and um, it's called Legal Education and Entitlement Piece. It has a piece that is focused on um, strategic advocacy for women that are facing legal issues around their housing. And number three is a judicial advocacy piece where working with uh, with justices in the state because th they do have abilities to think about their rulings of women, of pregnant women and women who are parenting babies um, who are facing housing crises. So Adam and his team are leading that whole piece. So I'm going to turn it back to Cami, and she can elaborate on all the awesomeness of healthy beginnings at home. Go for it. Thanks, Jack. We are super excited to uh, replicate a very successful evidence-based intervention that CareSource did in Ohio, and it is called Healthy Beginnings at Home. And this was a particular intervention geared towards women, pregnant women in particular, who are experiencing housing instability. And it had several different factors. One was housing navigation services, which means helping women actually look for um, housing that is both safe and affordable for themselves and, and their family. It also offered 24 months of tapering rental assistance, uh, which means that initially their entire rent was subsidized, but then as the woman became more stable in her condition, found gainful employment, um, had less social barriers, all of the things we, of course, provided support for, then the amount of rental assistance decreased over time. And then I think one of the most critical points was case management. So we leveraged our team of nurses and social workers to work hand in hand with these women to understand what those barriers were, what those hurdles were that we needed to clear in order to have them be able to sustain healthy um, and affordable housing over time. So we use various tools, including person-centered planning, which means putting that mom at the center, understanding really what her desires are, what her needs are, what her barriers are, and made a plan based on that. We use motivational interviewing, which means helping to understand what's important to that mom. So we may be very concerned about her diabetes, but she may be primarily concerned about getting employment. Well, we really want to focus our energy on what's important to her and then have those other things springboard off that. And I think another really important methodology that we used was trauma-informed care. So as Jack said, domestic violence is a large factor in housing instability. We also know that there's, you know, trauma from childhood. In Indiana, we know that involvement with the Department of Child Services is, is a huge factor 
and poor outcomes, poor birth outcomes. So we know that there are lots of things that are involved um, with trauma that our moms experience. So we make sure our team is leveraging trauma-informed care in order to provide all of the best services for the mom and, and really get into the root of what she, what she needed. The outcomes were fantastic. There were three outcomes that I would really um, highlight, which is that in the intervention group, so the group that we worked with, there was a much lower rate of uh, preterm delivery, so a much higher proportion of pregnancies that were being completed to full term. For those babies that actually ended up in the neonatal intensive care unit, the the length of their stay, which much, was much shorter, was about eight days compared to twenty nine days in the control group, which is which is pretty pretty spectacular. And then I think it's important to note that there was a huge reduction in the co- overall cost of care, the the spending towards that mom and that baby. Those are outcomes that are oftentimes difficult to, uh, to, to put numbers around. But I think being good stewards of the state's money and spending less on healthcare is something that is important to all of us. And we were able to demonstrate that um, in Ohio. So we're excited to, to do all of that and more here. So Healthy Beginnings at Home, that was a, a program that originated with CareSource? Yes, yes. So we had we had several partners because of course we cannot do anything alone and should not do anything alone. But yes, that was that was a care source project. And the that piece of it or that piece of the initiative, the Healthy Begins at Home in Marion County, that's gonna be your you're gonna be in charge of that part. We will be leading that right. effort, obviously working very closely with grassroots MCH and and all the other entities. Okay, great. Let me make sure I, under, I understood the, the rental assistance part. So if I am a pregnant woman and I am homeless um, and I get in front of, of the right people here with the initiative, initially my rent would be completely covered, but then it, it would taper. That is the ideal situation. Now, obviously, we don't plan to cut anyone off before they're ready. I think the way that it's tapered will have to be tailored to that individual mom and her needs. But yeah, I guess I was trying to figure out just heading into it as as a pregnant mom. Does that take you're going to take the housing worry off the table, at least initially? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a a safe, uh, Mm -hmm. secure Mm-hmm. Uh, place to live. Yep. In general, okay. in general, like Candy said, it, it, we we honor the uniqueness of every mother baby situation. But in general, it's fifteen months of rental assistance, and then tapered over nine months. And we're we're tapering it in three month intervals over those nine months. Does that make sense? Do, do you know what I mean? Like that's the way that that we have it mapped out. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, some of the results from the the Columbus, Ohio uh, initiative, and I, tell me if I'm taking this out of context. It still took participants an average of about two months to secure housing, even after enrollment. 
That is correct. And and that goes back to something Jack said about just the, the availability of housing. Um, so Ohio is very much like Indiana. There's just not enough housing that's uh, safe and affordable for everyone. So it, even in the best of circumstances, it does take a little bit of time. Here in Indy, we're really grateful for our partnership with Merchants Affordable Housing. They're they're leading the housing navigation piece, and they're already on it because they have connections with all these landlords and uh, agencies. And so they're literally already working, planning for our first round, our first cohort's enrollment, right? So that hopefully we can speed up that process of getting them in, in, in safe, secure housing. And I guess, and follow up uh, data gathering in Ohio, did they see, I mean, even more ripple effects from this assistance from the initiative, for example, would they have a easier time getting housing later once they were no longer part of the initiative? I don't know if it's possible to kind of figure out developmentally how the children were doing maybe two or three years down the line, but I mean, were they able to kind of take a look at a little bit farther out? I think we're still gathering that information because this was just done a few years ago. And then we had this little thing called COVID that got in the way. Yes. (laughs) So, So there was some overlap with this project in the beginning stages of COVID. So I think that the, the story has yet to be told about the, you know, the long-term um, effects of this. I would definitely expect though, that there, there should be positive, um, as you, as you stated, ripple effects to this work um, and being able to stay, stabilize that entire family unit. So how many uh, mothers would you be able to help uh, given the parameters financially of the program right now, you think? So we, yeah, so we are, we're committed to in, in the five year grant, we are committed to um, enrolling 100 women. That is our, you know, to show feasibility and, and efficacy here. And CareSource has linked my whole team with, all of their partners and teams in Ohio, right? So now we are working in partnership with them, right? So that we understand all of our data, do you know what I mean, and bring it together. I will put something out to the audience in all honesty that this is something that we're all dealing with here. So HRSA cannot provide the rental assistance, right? That's just like a, a a government thing. So part of our job in this initiative is to form public-private partnerships to get that rental assistance for the women. Now, CareSource has graciously, CareSource's foundation has graciously donated money to get us going, right? Do you know what I mean? To like help launch that. But we are actively working with government and private partners, and we welcome more partners to to the table to help provide that rental assistance. You, you know, we've done all of the economic data to understand it's about the whole rental assistance piece for the whole two years for a woman with um, actually up to four children. So she'd be pregnant and carrying one and delivering one, but she usually has other children, right? Do you know what I mean? So, um, 
we're looking at around 32,000 per woman. Do, do I mean, so we are actively seeking partnerships, people that want to be a part of this team and make contributions to help support the rental assistance. We, we would be incredibly grateful and we really welcome, like I said, public and private um, folks to be a part of this to help show the efficacy. Gotcha. If- so the, the $2.4 million grant, that does not go to the rental assistance. That is administering the program. Right, right. And and the staff and, and the case management and the housing navigation and the health justice intervention. But the federal government cannot provide the 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 funds for rental assistance. What happens at the end of the five years? You collect your data. Is there a possibility that, I mean, this could lead to a larger initiative of this kind? The goal, yeah, I mean, that was our, the, the charge from the federal government is that this is a systems change project, right? So our dream is that at the end of the five years, you know, we we have no, we're very confident that we will replicate the same kind of data that Ohio is seeing. And Ohio has grown this now outside of Columbus to other cities in, in Ohio because of all of the great outcomes that Cami talked about. So our dream is to um, grow it across Indiana, right? So that we are serving all housing unstable women um, in across Indiana. And, you know, the the point of this from a HRSA perspective is they they picked nine initiatives across the United States to fund for this with the hope that what all of us are doing in those initiatives become available for the country, right? I mean, that's the that's the point of these. Do you know what I mean? That we work to understand how to create these systems so that in other places, other municipalities can adopt this, right? And use this to help bring infant health equity to their communities. And when uh, would you expect to enroll your first uh, client? <laughs> <laughs> the quarter, the first quarter of next year, sometime between January and March. So we've already had people reach out um, and express interest, <laughs> and 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 that's that's great. That's great. We're we're happy that that the community shares our enthusiasm. We're not quite ready yet. Um, <laughs> but soon, soon. <laughs> right. Well, great. Well, I will look forward to that. And thank you guys again for taking the time. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you so much for the conversation and for shedding light on this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a ton for the attention. We really appreciate it. My thanks again to Camula Wright and Jack Turman. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are several stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to draw to your attention. First up, a growing number of elected officials, lobbyists, and casino operators are pushing Indiana and other states to allow brick-and-mortar casinos to host interactive online gaming. IBJ's Peter Blanchard looks at iGaming's chances. Also in this week's issue, John Russell reports on the fight between AES Indiana and customer groups over who will shoulder the $41.5 million cost related to a power outage at the Eagle Valley Power Plant in Martinsville. 
And Dave Lindquist has an in-depth interview with the new CEO of New Fields about the institution's new emphasis on equity and serving all of the city's communities. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you are a subscriber. And here is a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.